doing that, I was face to face with it. It was holding me by my throat. And it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's, there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages, and at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old, and at that point, it'll like religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person. I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy-looking being. Welcome. I'm your host. And this is uncomfortable. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am your host, Eric Salagi. If you've had an uncomfortable experience and you'd like to have it featured on the show, please get a hold of me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, both at Uncomfortable Podcast 65. And most importantly, please share the show with others and make sure you leave us a five-star rating and review where you can. Those are the main ways you can help in getting the show out in front of other people. I again will apologize for my voice as I am still trying to get over whatever the hellish thing is that I caught um, going on two weeks now and uh, I feel fine but the voice is just taking a complete and utter ass beating. I would like to take this opportunity to shout out to a new friend of the show Mr. Alan Bishop who was kind enough to send a care package the other day from his place of employment, which is French Lick Distillery down in South, uh, Southern Indiana. So uh, tonight's method of medication for, uh, for my voice is going to be some Hoosier apple brandy. Alan, thank you very much. Very tasty. Justin, I wish I could share it with you. Uh, just a heads up to any of you who may be attending this year's Ohio Bigfoot Conference. During the weekend of May 6th, please keep an eye out for myself and tonight's guest as we will both be there supporting our shows yet again. This is sure to be a great weekend. I am confident in saying that there will be many drinks had and many stories told at the nightly bonfires. Make sure you pick up the link for our uncomfortable discord in the show notes. The uncomfortable Patreon will be launching at some point during the month of May. Uh, Many of you have asked on how you can help support the show. Patreon looks like it's the best way I can provide you with that. And it will also be the only place you can find uncomfortable afterthoughts and possibly a little uncomfortable. Not going to say any more about that. 
Keep your eyes and ears open for the uh, the official announcement of this year's Bigfoot and Brews. It will again be held at Sister Lakes Brewing Company. Most likely uh, September 9th is uh, a lock for the date. Uh, we're happen to have two, hoping to have two well-known speakers this year and rounding out the rest of the day with some very knowledgeable people from, um, on the topic uh, from the Midwest. Um, it's come to my attention that there will be some recognizable folks in the audience. Uh, possibly some of your favorite podcasters have uh, already committed to making sure that they are there for the day. Uh, I may leak a little bit more information as we go on. But enough of that. Tonight's guest is the host of 73 different podcasts airing on eight days a week, often referred to as the smartest man in the room. And on one of his latest efforts, he will actually be creating documentaries from the comfort of his own lawn chair. Ladies and gentlemen, my brother from another mother. Mr. Justin England from the Cryptids of the Corn podcast. Justin, welcome back to Uncomfortable. Thank you, Eric. Oh, gosh, that was a hell of an intro. I'm so I greatly appreciate it. And yeah, it feels like we have about an episode coming out about every day plus one or two here or there anymore. Good Lord, man. You guys uh, are the hardest working hosts in podcasting. I think I have like 16 hours a week into scripts. But getting ready to have a baby, so I'm just getting used to not sleeping anyways. Yeah. I can sit there and type while the baby's sleeping. Uh, but, no, thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it, and it's a really fun topic, one of my favorites. Well, you know, so here, let me set the stage for y'all. Um, it was uh, three three weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer, four. Um, I'm, watching, uh, I'm watching some videos, and I come across a – um, what looked to be a rather, um, rather extensive newscast, uh, broadcast, um, like from a bigger city, not something that you would see in South Bend or something like that, probably, you know, like Grand Rapids or whatever it is. Um, and it was a, a male host and a female host and they were, they were leading in with this, uh, this fungal infection that has uh, now taken lives in nearly half of the states in the U.S. And they were touting it as the real life Last of Us. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, The Last of Us is a, uh, a, a very well-known video game on the subject of zombies. Um, and where, where zombies have been pretty much uh, run into the ground in many aspects, um, in movies and, and TV shows. Uh, this, this one in particular has a, a very interesting twist to it. The, the zombies um, were actually created because of a fungal infection. And it, it was a, it's a really well done show. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend watching it. Um, I believe it's on Netflix. And uh, yeah. Really, Pedro Pascal's in it, and uh, the the young girl that is a sidekick. They do a fantastic job. It really is a it really is a unique enough take on the zombie topic to get me back in interested into it. Um, on top of being a great story, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, cutscenes uh, versus what they actually did in the 
in the series and and it is like almost frame for frame very very accurate to the to the game but i found it interesting that they would you know again media likes to use scare tactics and yes, they, do. they do it in every aspect of of new news broadcasting i've i've often said you know our our weather channel here is known as storm team 16 you know it can't just be weather it's got to be some kind of a storm you know whether it's a, a winter storm or a summer storm or a spring storm or a fall storm uh everything is is grossly exaggerated and and all uh all trying to get people to come back because of uh fear mongering and and making you feel like if you don't watch this your lives are in danger um <laughs> but with that being said i reached out to justin because he is um very very much knowledgeable in biology uh for one and he also likes to do a lot of um a lot of research so when i posed the question to him if he'd like to do an episode with me based on this um pretty much came back with a hell yeah let's get it done so ladies and gentlemen i am going to take a break from talking and i am going to let justin bring us in on this perfect uh so yeah the name of the fungus that we're mostly talking about tonight is candidia arius or c arius is what it's referred to it's a relatively now when they say newly discovered you know it's been around for about eight years that's considered newly discovered uh and it has been it has been going around in the news, and like we like you already said, scare tactics, all this. So before we get into what this thing is and everything, I just wanted to give the actual numbers of infected over the last couple of years and why most uh, calm mind biologists think is ha- happening with this. And I will say, I'm not a mycologist; I just enjoy the subject. Uh, but so, first year we're going to talk about is 2019. They had about 500 infected cases in the U.S. All were immunocompromised. All were in either long-term hospital stays or nursing homes. Uh, The next year, it bumped up to 756. Same criteria. The next year after that, it was 1471. Same criteria. So now we're into 2020 or uh, 2021, I'm sorry. And then in 2022, it jumped up to 2,377. All the same criteria. The people, and these are just infected cases, not deaths. Uh, this is so. This is a single-celled fungus. It's actually very kind of similar to some of our fungus we used for, for yeast and brewing and such. Um, this thing attacks the bloodstream, but your antibodies are normally extremely able to fight this thing off pretty quick if you're well, you know, well enabled uh, with your immune system. Uh, every case of death with this has been an immunocompromised person or an elderly person. It's crazy to me when I, I look at the same, the same articles or the, the news reports on YouTube and stuff like that, and they're talking about it like it's the next apocalypse. And this past year, there was only, and I say only, 2,377 cases in the entire continental U.S. Uh, we still have more swine flu cases. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, so what they were talking about is what was alarming was the uh, exponential growth, the percentage growth. Uh, you know, from 2019 to now, it's pretty much almost quadrupled, uh, which would be is kind of alarming. But a big thing happened 
in those dates that was focused on in the medical field that overstressed our systems and uh, what we think is why some of these were slipping through and why we kind of attribute the rise in the case of this fungus uh, was COVID. Uh, you know, elderly people were forced to stay in. Uh, I used to work in a nursing home during part of that period. And when we quarantined, they had to stay in their rooms. So these fungus infections start off pretty mild, but by the time they were getting caught, they were already pretty advanced. Uh, so like they're saying in the news, they are extremely drug resilient funguses. Uh, these little guys, uh, CR aureus, but your immune system normally, if you get it, if you catch it soon enough, your immune system can fight it off. Uh, this thing attacks the blood. It's nasty to mess around with. So real quick, you yes. know, like some of the other funguses that, uh, that we fall victim to, um, athlete's foot or mm-hmm. ringworm, you know, things like that. Um, is MRSA one of them as well? Um, I'd have, to, I have MRSA somewhere on here. I got a little list beside me. I guess, I, I guess the question is, is this related uh, to those? Is this related to, is this in any way related to anything that we have may have seen in our past that has gotten out of control and, and gotten rampant. So as far as its family group, the Cardias are not, or the Cardidias, I'm sorry, are not, uh, they are common diseases. Uh, they are, they've been around for humans with humans for a very, very long time. As far from my research, I didn't see any of the others. Sorry, cut out there. I didn't see any of the other species really stand out as a remarkable disease. Uh, so fungus have a lot of trouble with mammals. Uh, fungus are one of the number one killers of fish and reptiles mm-hmm. being cold blooded. They can take advantage of their slow reacting immune system and stuff like that. If you look at a lot of the funguses that infect us, they're mostly on the outside of our bodies where our immune systems have a lot more trouble. Like you were saying, athlete's foot, ringworm, you know, it's attacking the skin, it's attacking the cuticles, it's attacking these areas. Your immune system really can't reach very effectively. Uh, this one is different because it's directly attacking the bloodstream. Uh, but yeah, so its family, I believe it has right around 1,600 other species in its family group, and they're all pretty much pathogens. Uh, and nobody else really stands out. And to me, this one doesn't really stand out. The only thing that they're really worried about is the, the you know compounding interest of its numbers going up. But a lot of biologists believe and a lot of medical professionals believe that it's going to go back down to normal numbers uh, with the medical, the strain on the medical system relaxing, uh, you know, in 2000, think in 2020, think about how hard it was to go to the doctor's office. Uh, funny enough, that's when I had a lung parasite and I couldn't get into the doctor because they kept telling me I had COVID and that was, uh, I was getting so weak. I and my wife had to set up chairs for me to go to the bathroom, like as in to reach the bathroom yeah. from the living room. 20 feet. Jesus. I couldn't breathe long enough. And finally I went to an infectious disease doctor and we got that taken care of. So that was me. Uh, you know, at that point I was 26 years old, you know, that's pretty healthy. And I was very close to going over the edge of not being able to, you know, come back from that disease. Now this thing is attacking mainly uh, nursing home uh, patients and stuff like that and long care and long care hospital patients. So they're already struggling uh, so any pathogen can really do that. And 
the fungus just have a really hard time dealing with our active immune system and our warm-blooded nature and our consistent body temperature. With fungus the, generally prefer cool, uh, moist areas. With I'm these sorry. things attacking people in um, in hospital situations, uh, you know, nursing home, care facilities, uh, hospitals, is this a uh, is this a, a cleanliness uh, issue or is this? You know, I mean, a lot of them believe that they're always present, but the cleanliness issue does is a big factor. Uh, they they can easily be so they're basically single celled fungus. So they're not like the mushrooms in your backyard. Those are mycelia fungus. You know, they're these big massive networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, like ringworm is more of a mycelia. That's why it forms that circle on you or wherever it ends up being. Uh, so these guys are just imagine them like little tiny jelly beans everywhere. It only takes one of them. Uh, to start an infection. Normally, your immune system will kick it out pretty quick. Uh, so when you're in a hospital, like hospitals are the easiest place to get sick because you have a big congregation of sick people. Right. Uh, so, yes, cleanliness is a factor. And I've seen a couple of the reports talking about, like, one of the biggest things to fight against them is just washing your hands properly. Uh, they can be destroyed. You know, it's a, it, they're a fungus. They're easily killed with... Uh, just like hand wash and stuff like that, just soap. Uh, they're not these big, you know, they're drug resistant. And that's what everybody's talking about, the drug resistance, drug resistance. Those are all talking about these really extreme cases when they're already infected most of the bloodstream. And they are very resilient, uh, but that's at the end of the case. When they catch these cases very early, they're normally very treatable. Interesting. So I did... Uh while you were doing the 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 deep dives in the in the research and stuff i decided to ask ai and see what ai would come up with um, let's hear it well I, I basically i asked ai about the likelihood of a zombie outbreak from a fungus and uh, not surprisingly it says as a uh, as an AI language model I must clarify that zombies are fictional creatures that do not exist in reality therefore there is no scientific evidence to suggest that a zombie outbreak is possible straight off the bat which is weird because it feels like somebody's talking to me when this is just a non-sentient being. (laughs) So they say, um, however, we're to assume the question refers to a hypothetical scenario. The likelihood of a zombie outbreak would depend on the cause of an outbreak. There are many possible scenarios that could lead to a zombie outbreak, including viral infections, genetic mutations, or exposure to radiation or toxic chemicals. That sentence in itself is, it, and please believe me, I, I don't think that there's going to be a zombie apocalypse. However, if there is to be a, an apocalypse, I think personally, I would prefer a zombie apocalypse. Because you could, if you were tactful enough, if you had the skills, you could spend your entire day killing things. And there would be no retribution for it. I think you could, I think initially for this, 
say the first six months, you could get a lot of aggression out of your system. Um, but I mean, that's just, that's just me. I would, uh, I would prefer that rather than a nuclear winter or, or something like that. Um, I think with a zombie apocalypse, at least you stand some semblance of a chance of survival, uh, to what end? I don't know. But, uh, so back to AI, assuming that the search, assuming that there's such a scenario were to occur, the most likely cause an hypothetical zombie outbreak would likely be a virus or other pathogen that alters the behavior of infected individuals and turns them aggressive. Now, that statement right there, the pathogen that alters the behavior of affected individuals, there is something that is very, uh, very similar to that, if not spot on to that, in our natural known uh, animal world. Mm -hmm. um, that being a, a fungi that, <coughs> God, they come out of nowhere, else I'd just hit the mute, but man, I don't have time. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, good. These, uh, some of you may have seen videos of these beetles that uh, are, are motivating on their own accord. They're walking, and as they pass the camera, it becomes very apparent that there are no internal or workings of, of this beetle anymore. It is completely hollowed out, uh, yet it is still under motivation by some unseen source, which would make one think that that was a zombie beetle. Um, that is a hundred percent a zombie. But what we're talking about is, is a fungal, uh, parasite. Tell us about that. I mean, I, I find it. So I have it up for you. I have it. Cra uh, it's I'm, crazy that it's able to manipulate another organism to walk and move and, and transport itself from one place to another. Mighty mycelia. Uh, that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, so I'm going to try to pronounce the scientific name for you. If anybody doesn't know at home, scientific names are written just to screw with you. <laughs> that is the only purpose. And this one is no different. Uh, so I picked, this is going to be one of the more common fungus that does this as part of its reproductive cycle. Uh, but there are literally dozens of species that hijack hosts. And even later on, if you want, we'll talk about some of the bigger species that hijacked host for feeding cycles, not even just zombification. Uh, but this is Orphe oranki adopolis, Ultra Aurelius. Jesus. They, they had to use every letter in the alphabet besides Z. <laughs> Uh, but no, this is, this is the main fungus, like you said. If you watch on like, Nat Geo or something and you see this ant or this beetle crawling through. And so the whole goal, so like I said, there's dozens of species that do this. This type of zombification is just done for reproduction. Many people may not understand at home that that mushroom you see above ground in your yard or whatever is what's called the fruiting body of the fungus. So the mushroom, the, the fungus, so basically it uses mycelia to uh, wrap into the neural network of these insects. Uh, so it kind of is operating them like a big robot. Anything that's not vital for that motion is digested to help make the next part reproductive cycle. 
So they're operating these insects like robots. They're crawling up to, depending on the species, either uh, they're going to a dark, damp place or they're going up high. So everybody's seen the pictures. I'm sure if you Google it, this is what will pop up is an ant or a bug that's sitting on top of a big blade of grass or a leaf that has the mushroom coming out of its head. So that's the goal for that particular species. So what it's doing is then it has a giant aerial view for it to spread the spores and spread out over a much more vast area than it would normally do if the mushroom just popped up out of the ground. So it's just the reproductive body of that mycelia network. So even it's crazy to think about this is like a tree throwing an apple at a bird, the apple hijacking the bird's brain, melting it down and making it fly 150 yards away to plant that tree. Fungus are much more closely related to animals than they are plants. Uh, that's kind of another misconception. Fungus actually move through the ground. They, it's kind of slow motion, but they kind of slither around and they can move their whole bodies. Uh, so that is so that for that example, so that species will rise up high and it'll spread its spores. Some of them want to be more pinpoint with where they're putting their offspring. Uh, so they'll cause these beetles or stuff to go into these deep crags underground into this very fertile, moist soil. And then the beetle or the bug's body will break apart. Uh, and it's pretty much limited to arthropods. Uh, and that's that type of reproduction. So that is literally a zombification. And then when you get to your area or as you're getting to your area for reproduction, you're melting your host down and then using your host to spread your offspring. It's very similar to viruses and how viruses kind of work. They hijack a host cell for reproduction of their, that's why viruses, some biologists don't consider them alive, some do, because they, they can't reproduce by their self. They need a third party to help procreate. Uh, so this species of fungus kind of does that same thing to where they're using the host to melt down to make their own offspring. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an extremely creepy thing. It is very uh, fungus, very creepy. Yeah, fun. For everybody at home that may not know, uh, the oldest fungus fossil we have is a mycelia network. So this is this giant underground network and it's co very complex, 580 million years old. And it was already as complex as some of the species today. So that's, they've been around pretty much in geological terms since day one being very complex. Uh, fungus used to, they were what was considered the first trees, these giant 30 to 40 foot tall pillars of fungus. Uh, and they, you know, they break down, uh, they're decomposers, they're mycelia network. If anybody, when I keep saying mycelia network, so when you break apart an old rotting piece of log or whatever, and you see those little tiny strings, that's mycelia network. That's just a visible, uh, the tiny, tiny, tiny ones are called hyphae and you can't, sometimes you can see them with the naked eye, but it's very hard. So a mycelia network's like a big bundle of cables and the hyphae are the individual cables. Uh, so they kind of operate like plants and they kind of operate like animals. But for this fungus, uh, that zombification, it's insane. And it can affect whole colonies. Uh, it's just crazy to me. I love it. Okay. So, you know, we've, we've covered the beetles. We, we touched on that uh, ants can be affected as well. Um, but larger animals as well. And people? So I've, for these species of fungus uh, that hijack the nerve systems, it's pretty much limited to arthropods. Uh, it's a varying and, size and, of arthropod. An arthropod is? Anything, with, think of like an exoskeleton, anything from like a, a crayfish to a beetle to a spider, 
specifically this kind is has a more wide general uh, target. There are certain species that only target one other species. Like there's like a certain species that targets black carpenter ants, uh, you know, but this guy, this giant horrible named creature, <laughs> uh, targets pretty much anybody that's this little tiny spore. Think of it as a snowflake will land on the body and it will infect them. And it's just kind of like the zombie bite. And when it, you know, when you get bit, you may not know you get bit and then you carry it around. And sometimes they lay dormant for a very long time. Uh, fungus is, sorry, Wi-Fi is going out. Fungus is one of the biggest killers in non-warm blooded animals. Uh, and then when you get warm blooded, you know, it's bacteria and virus and whatnot. Uh, cause bacteria and viruses, they prefer a host that has a consistent blood, you know, a consistent body temperature. Fungus don't like it hot and vice versa. Uh, like fish will get this parasitoid fungus on their skin. that looks like white hair. Uh, and that's where the, one of the, my favorite legends of a cryptid came from the fur bearing trout. Is that, uh, is, that catch. is that ick? So ick is a fungus, that, uh, but this is white hair fungus, but okay. ick is a fungus, uh, which is a, that's a more clustral fungus. Uh, and the thing is, all those funguses are present in almost all living water. And what I mean is living water is non-sterilized water. Uh, so they're always there. Every one of those species is always there in North American water. And it's just waiting for the host to feel a little sick one day. And then it grabs a hold. Uh, and there's always fungal spores around you. Like right now, uh, we're going mushroom picking and all that stuff. The air is literally packed with spores. Uh, so if it were be able to affect you, it, you know, it wouldn't take, it wouldn't be that hard. Maybe that's what I've um, got. You probably do. And lung. So there are a couple species that do affect the lungs, but a lot of those are rainforest species and you have to live in the rainforest to get them as in, you know, high humidity fungus do generally or generally enjoy high humidity, like athlete's foot, for example, you know, you're wearing socks all day, you're wearing shoes, you know, you're sweating. So you're producing a humid environment for them. Well, I'm going to choose to believe that I'm one in 8 billion that, uh, that got a rainforest, uh, parasitic, uh, fungus, uh, without, ever, without ever being to the, uh, the rainforest. It's amazing. But there's literally tens of thousands of species of fungus that have been identified and we go we discover new species. So mycology, the study of mycology isn't a very extremely popular field until recently. Uh, you know, and a lot of people like the magic mushrooms and there is definitely psilocybin is definitely a part of it. So people started studying that more, but the number of fungus are just crazy. Um, like lion's mane mushrooms, they're the big weeping willow looking ones. Uh, they're pretty sure they have the cure for Alzheimer's in them. There is a uh, amino acid they produce that looks like it can reverse uh, long-term nerve damage to the brain. Really? Uh, it's amazing. Uh, and they're still working on that right now, but there's some studies that was in Japan, I believe, that was showing they have really positive results with tea, lion's mane tea with Alzheimer's. Uh, speaking, uh, not to take you off subject, but speaking, no. of, speaking of Japan, um, so the fungus that we're talking about are not actually mushrooms, but they are related in a sense to mushrooms that we find in the, in the woods. They're related to yeah. mushrooms that we eat uh, with our steaks or, or our hamburgers and stuff like that. So they are in the same family. Um, am I crazy or do I remember seeing, I thought it was from Japan, 
that they actually used a fungus to help design some of their subterranean um, transit systems because it was me able, to it. because it was able to figure out the quickest and most efficient way to get from point A to point B. Yes. So that is a slime mold, uh, a very fascinating creature. Uh, so it takes the mycelia network to the next level where it's more fluidic. It can be above. It looks like snot. It looks like brightly colored snot. And uh, there's even some species of that that are predatory, uh, believe it or not. There are fungus that are predatory on animals. Uh, but so that species, uh, they put, uh, it was uh, like wheat oats on the major subway stations. They put it on a topographical map and, uh, with existing buildings and stuff like that. So at first, the slime mold, what it does is it kind of blankets out like the, like a big piece of just cheese. It, it kind of looks like water. It spreads out, and then it will reorganize itself in the most efficient way to get all the resources available. So they used its own natural ability, its own natural calculations to redesign their complete subway system, or their uh, not their subway system, their underground train system. Uh, and it's been working. It's the most efficient system in the world. If anybody doesn't know, you look it up. The Japanese rail system is one of the most efficient systems in the world, and it's because a fungus designed it. Isn't that terrifying, though? You know, I, I mean, love it because you know I, I mean, talked to them in my backyard. I, I I did you know I did my share of of digging into uh, research in this before uh, we got on here because, I mean, I wasn't going to let you be the only smart guy in the room. <laughs> but uh, it, it's kind of terrifying to know that something that does not have um, cognizant thought is able, think to, so. is able to do that kind of magic. Um. Now, I did, I did run into a couple articles that said that there is some communicative skills that they possess. They're able to uh, essentially talk to each other through a series of, of chemical releases, uh, some chemical stimulant uh, signals. Um, but that seems like, you know, especially with the, uh, the Underground Railway, um, that seems like some significant intelligence to be in a ooze for the most. So part. I'm going to give our show a shout out. We did an episode called sentient mushrooms, our fungal neighbors. Uh, I don't think, I think they're very intelligent. I think their type of intelligence they have is very alien to us. Uh, they're an incredibly old group of, of creatures. I say creatures cause they're not plants and they're not animals. Uh, there's something different, but most biologists believe animals came from fungus. Uh, when you look at stuff like slime molds, it's very easy to see because uh, they're very similar to jellyfish just on land. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they are not, they, that they are sentient, that they have some level of sentientship. Uh, Miami University just did a study last year, improved fungus can count. Some species of fungus in the ground can count. They can resource manage. Uh, they can interspecies communicate. And that, so that means they're not just talking to their own species. They're talking to other species of fungus. And they can learn. 
So he put this group of a mycelium network. So think of it like a whole bunch of cables laying out in the yard. That's the actual fungus itself. The mushrooms are just the fruiting bodies. So he puts all these in a box and he's basically treating this as in extreme drought conditions. So this fungus is barely surviving. It is just, but it figured out it biologically, it learned how to deal with the situation. He introduces it to another box with a much larger, larger fungal colony of the same species. This box has pretty much its entire existence just had a positive environment, very easy living. So it would be very sloth-like living. Uh, always was given food. It always had plenty of water. It was perfect conditions. Uh, he then turned up the heat and lowered the water, simulating those drought conditions. This big guy didn't know how to deal with it. He would have. So what fungus are doing is they start killing sections of their self on purpose uh, to reserve resources. But with that little neural network, that little fungus told the big one how to survive it more efficiently. It didn't cut any of itself off. It did a whole different thing, was never documented before. It was truly amazing. So this little colony told the big colony, hey, this is what we need to do. Now they did tests for counting too. Uh, they, I cannot remember the exact name of the test, but basically they proved they can at least count to three. And what they'll do with resource management they put pieces up. So they're decomposers. Most, most species of fungus are decomposers. They'll have extremely easy food sources close to their center mass. So think of them kind of like a big octopus with all these tentacles reaching out, but they do have a center-ish. You know, sometimes off to the side, whatever, uh, but they have a center mass. So they will ball up around this food source and not start breaking it down. They're the first level decomposer. So if they're not breaking it down, nobody else is really breaking it down. So they kind of lock it in like a food storage container and they rather they go out further and they eat the food that's further away, harder to decompose first. And they save this guy close to home for when times are tough and they can't extend their bodies out that far. So as far as a non-intelligent thing, they have so much, so much, what seems to be intelligence. Right. I fully believe they have some type of intelligence. Have, have there been any kind of studies done or any kind of attempts at um, measuring the, you know, like, what am I getting at here? You know, I mean, people can have their brain waves studied. You can, you know, have, have there been, have there been studies done that show an activity in the, in the fungus itself or the body of the fungus uh, under certain stressors or certain situations? A hundred percent. This is one of my favorite things. So if anybody hasn't had the, uh, the chance, look up uh, fungus hooked up to a synthesizer. So what a synthesizer essentially does is takes electrical impulses and plays music or uh, sounds. Uh, fungus don't have a neural network like we do. They have something else. They have a mycelium network, but it functions very, very simil- similarly. They plug them in. They show fear response. They show positive response. Uh, when they put two funguses where the neural or where their mycelium networks can touch, it seems like they're talking. It almost sounds like bird chatter. It's incredible. The amount, and they literally they'll cut chunks off of them, and it sounds like they're screaming, like uh, like you're literally cutting a chunk off of. They, really? There's so much. And then so Dr. Money is the guy from Miami University. Uh, we've had a couple of email correspondences and stuff like that. This is a very new side to my or to mitochondria. Uh, 
that they're just now starting to get into like funding for this stuff. He was one of the first ones that did the study about them counting and learning. Uh, and I think over the next couple of years, it's going to be a really big thing. Okay. Um, it's just let, me, let me interrupt you. So yeah. you, you talk about the counting, you talk about the learning, uh, learning specific behavior. When you say that, is that a, is that a stretch? Is that a, it could be, it could be viewed as something else, but we're going to, we're going to kind of stretch it and make it sound like, oh, I you know what I mean? So these are all lab are peer, peer reviewed lab studies. So that means they've been through, uh, they've been scrutinized by other biologists and other mycologists that weren't a part of the study. Mm -hmm. And generally science scientists are kind of mean to each other. Uh, peer reviewing process destroys a lot of good research in my opinion, but anything that makes it out of the shredder is normally pretty credible. Uh, and so he has both of his studies peer reviewed and published, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, so that to me, it, it's really, you'd have to go through the studies as a one-on-one -on -one basis and really decide how you feel about it. Uh, he doesn't think that they are sentient by any means. That's more my opinion. He does think they have some very limited cognitive ability. Um, I'm taking some of his studies and that is my spin on it. Yes. So, but the studies are real. Uh, and I, that's, I mean, we all have problems with some of the mainstream science and stuff like that. I'm no exception. Uh, but that's something I would definitely look into as a one-on-one -on -one basis. And his studies are all, I believe it's Miami university here in Ohio. Uh, his studies are all public. They're all peer reviewed. They're all published. So anybody can get a hold of them. Uh, they've been, I think there's another institution right now retesting his experiments. And I cannot think of it for the life of me what that institution is. Uh, but that's very exciting to see how those studies come up. And if they find uh, very, you know, similar things, that's very exciting. Okay. So let's move on to our, our big friend, our big, big guy, our, our big buddy out there in, uh, on the on the west coast bob big old bob love bob Bob's, uh, so Bob's, bob is a, a honey bastard. mushroom he's a big bass he is uh he is 2200 acres squared uh so that means so he's an entire state forest uh so before we get into all that stuff with bob that bob is a honey mushroom bob is a common species of mushroom in most of the northern hemisphere uh, there are three examples that we know of that are monstrous in size. Bob is the biggest of the three. He has two sisters. Uh, Bob, we estimate about 45,000 years old. And that's an estimate just based off of his size. Uh, nobody really knows. He could be a lot younger and he could be a lot older. Uh, we know he's roughly 2,200 acres squared. And that doesn't mean that that's his actual size. Like That means if you were able to ball him up, in a nice box, he'd be 2,200 acres. But sprawling, he's almost, sprawling yes. he is much larger than that. Yes. Uh, so he takes up pretty much an entire state forest on his back. In the 1950s, uh, when Bob was found, what had happened is they drilled into, to take a core sample out of the ground, and they came back the next day, and there's about 100 acres of trees that died overnight. Uh, and they're like, what's going on here? And they finally found out it's, they thought this forest was full of mushrooms. It's not, it's full of a mushroom. Uh, it's just Bob. Uh, 
so he is uh, truly amazing. And there are some very interesting studies that just came out with Bob. So um, let's go back to the, the, the hundred acres of forest dying off. Yes. What, what, what transpired in the, For why that, in, in yeah. the taking of the core from, from Bob that, that killed off a hundred acres of, of wooded land. So these mushrooms have an amazing thing, what they do. So everybody, we were talking about virus or, fun, or zombies earlier. Uh, this is a little bit of the next step. This to me would be a little scarier because the trees and the insects that are involved are so themselves. So we used to think it was more of a trading system, but we now know it's more that the fungus is in control. What happens is, is the honey mushrooms, uh, mycelia network integrates into the trees network and all the plants networks and even some of the insect colonies in the area. So Bob is controlling everything on his back, every plant he's integrated in. So what he does is he will transfer nutrients from one tree to the other. Uh, he'll even kill sections of forest off on his back. He'll kill them. He'll physically kill hundred acres on purpose uh, to promote prairie growth, to re-nutrify the soil. And we have fossil, or we don't want fossil evidence. We have ground evidence to show he's been doing this like a clock over his entire body for the last 45,000 years. But why did that, why that hundred acres of forest died uh, was because they cut one of his, basically kind of think of as a central artery to that area. They were drilled right through it. These trees had no idea how to survive without Bob because he was fully integrated into their bodies. So when they cut off the, the, the chunk that was telling these trees what to do, they pretty much just lost all of their nutrients and dropped all their leaves in a night. It's insane. He runs everything on his back. So they're literally, Bob literally is incorporated into the physical essence of those trees. So it, yes. it's not just that he surrounds or he is in the ground around the root systems. He is literally. Um, He's integrated into them. Integrated into them. Yeah, and he controls their water flow. Uh, it, generally, though, it's a pretty, pretty positive outcome for the entire forest because what that means is you have a very stable environment where most of the plants and a good chunk of the insect life are working in unison because uh, when Bob benefits, the forest benefits. So I said earlier he'll kill off a whole section of forest, and that kind of sounds bad, but the forest actually needs that because uh, that re-neutrifies the soil. If these giant old trees don't let anything new come in for so, so long, the soil will die because they're just sitting there taking, 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 and nothing is getting the chance to break down more soil and stuff like that. So it's a very amazing environment when you're on. We, we want to drive out and go out to Bob and stuff like that, especially when he's in bloom. So let, let, uh, me, get, let me get my head wrapped around this. Yeah. So they took the core out of Bob overnight, yep. 100 acres or so dies off of this forest with the intent with the intent that by killing off all that wooded area it was going to die decompose go back into the ground and become nutrients for bob to heal to so no i'm sorry when they when they cut that section of him off the trees didn't know how to survive they were actually dumped so that was nothing to do with bob uh, and we've had that happen with other mycelia networks and other forests. Basically, they're cutting the control cable. So the trees don't know how to function anymore naturally. Uh, so it wasn't, Bob wasn't killing those, that section of forest on purpose. 
uh, it was because they cut the chunk of Bob off that was going to that section of forest, but he was still integrated into them. So they weren't functioning like normal trees. You know, they weren't able to just kind of self-sustain. But a fun fact about what I just said, 95%, and everybody you can Google this at home, 95% of all plants on earth need fungus at one stage of their life cycle or another to survive. So if you snapped your fingers and fungus disappeared tonight, 95% of plants alive today would go extinct. Now, fungus has been responsible for the extinction of species. Oh, yeah. Mostly aquatic, though, right? That and bananas. Uh, there's a fun story with that with bananas. Do you know why artificial banana doesn't taste like banana? No. <laughs> so in the 1960s, uh, the original species of banana that was domesticated was much sweeter and more like candy, like the artificial flavor. Uh, a fungus is spread, uh, wiped them out. And then we domesticated a close cousin that take, that's the one we have today. But they already developed the artificial flavor when we had the old banana. Mm. There's some Jeopardy knowledge for you. Wow. But no, so yeah, they are they're the grand equalizer, one of the oldest complex species on the planet, if not the oldest complex species on the planet. Uh, they've survived every mass extinction with little to no effect. Uh, Bob has been around, like I said, in the low end, you know, some people put him at 30,000 years and some people put him all the way to 150,000 years old. Uh, so most conservatives put him at 45,000 years old. Um, has there ever his been a, sister, has there ever been a study done that would extrapolate what would happen to Oregon if Bob died? So that that valley he's controlling would all die most likely. Uh, it would it would die pretty quick. It would reheal after time, sure. But uh, a lot of the plants and stuff he's integrated into right now would die, just like that small section of forest. You know the fact uh, that you say that he's integrated into the trees and the plants and and literally fungus is responsible for uh, nurturing ninety five percent of any any growing. Uh, uh, plant on this world that we that we live on what is what is the likelihood that in some way shape or form fungus is in us and we rely on that as well so there's a group of mycologists uh that think that we are the byproduct of something like that uh, to where maybe our, and this is more, this is definitely, this is the, I guess, more fringe, uh, where like stoned ape theory, I'm sure you've heard of that. And I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of that. Uh, but that when you enter that next level of consciousness, that's a piece of them that they're, you're getting into their plane now. Cause they're, think about it. They're basically a whole bunch of internet cables that are over every surface of land. They're in the atmosphere. They're in the ocean. They're even in Antarctica in the ice sheets. There's a group, there's a species of fungus that lives in the snow in the ice in Antarctica. They are, there's no spot on this planet. You can't go without being near them from the deep sea vents to the tippy top of the atmosphere. And there's some mycologists that think that they kind of run that, that when you, like, uh, I don't know, I'm not that kind of person, but 
when you get high and you get to that next plane, that's their area. That's their consciousness that you're kind of dipping into. And those entities tend to be pretty excited that you're there, uh, that you're talking to them. Uh, so is that, a, you know, are they a piece of us in some subconscious way, the zeitgeist, whatever you want to call it? I don't know. Uh, if it was going to be anything, though, that's who I'd put my money on. I bet it all on the mushrooms. Because uh, it's funny that you bring that up because um, you, you kind of you kind of stole my thunder a little bit on that because I was going to bring that up. Um, is there any, have you run across anything? I, I imagine this would be something very specialized that you would have to look into, but you know, the plants that uh, provide uh, ayahuasca um, or, or the, the types of, uh, plants that you you have to ingest in in some way uh, if, to get DMT. Um, very very similar experiences by people who take ayahuasca or DMT as as the same with the psilocybin uh, mushrooms. Is there is there any indication that those plants are are nurtured by the same fungus that would be psilocybin. And I guess, so I, guess every, my, I guess my point is in a, in, and you want to talk fringe. This is, this is fringe, but um, <laughs> you know, those, those entities, those, um, those, those beings that people see when they, they partake of, of those substances are very, very, um, very common and very much uh, recognized to be extremely similar by everybody who does that. Um, is, are we, when you're under that, uh, when you're under the influence of that, when you've, when you've taken that into your body, are you experiencing the, the consciousness of that, that plant, that, that fungus, you know, is that, is what, is that what they are in their realm? So I, in my opinion, and this is just an opinion specifically with psilocybin trips. Yes. I do think that those are the entities, at least some of the entities you are experiencing are the consciousness or the constructs of the fungal colonies below you. Uh, and some people ask, how would they know your language, all this stuff? We actually have proof that fungus can receive radio signals. They don't know what to do with them, but they can pick them up. Uh, so they've been getting blasted with our sounds since the first radio. And they don't see like we do, you know, they don't experience the world like we do. They're very alien. So when we meet on these, when my feel, when we meet on these common grounds where we're both kind of in a weird state, that's these entities generally seem to be pretty excited to get to talk to somebody. You know, uh, a lot of these, we did a deep dive into the psilocybin trips and they seem to be generally like, they're not the ones that are like demonic that are scaring you. You know, get that with the DMT more and you get that with the other ones uh, where they can't have very negative, scary entities pop up. But with psilocybin trips, generally speaking, you get very similar entities. Like for some reason, mechanical gnomes or mechanical elves get brought up constantly, constantly. 
and it's over the world. It's not a U.S. thing. It's not a Scandinavian thing. You know, it's it's in the world. This mechanical elves, and you think about it. And here's my little thing. I did it. Uh, they kind of draw them like lawn gnomes. What else do they always have with lawn gnomes? Sorry, what else they always have with lawn gnomes is mushrooms. But the way mushrooms behave in nature is very mechanical. It's very, you know, cost efficient. It's very, you know, the, how they make their decisions and stuff like that is very mechanical. So it's to me, that's what points to them being the, both the guardians of nature and this very mechanical being. Uh, and that's kind of how they express themselves. And that's what I think is this middle space that we're all experiencing. Uh, but yeah, I think you're talking, you may be talking to mushrooms when you take mushrooms. Now I've never done it myself. So I've only had to interview people to get this information. But like you said yourself, that the number of people that are experiencing the same entities and that's all over the world, yeah. people that don't speak the same language, people that don't, you know, they don't have the same mindsets, the same culture are experiencing the same entities that have the same feelings. Uh, and they're describing them in such weird, similar ways. You know, this tribe in Africa isn't going to describe anything else, anything else in their life. How you describe your in your life? But they, when they talk to this thing, like, yeah, this is what it kind of looks like. And it's like, what? You know, it's so. Yeah, I do think there's something there. I am the one of the ones that believe mushrooms are kind of, they are conscious, but not in maybe the way we are. Uh, they're very alien. So, like, um. We did an episode, and I, I'm one that thinks the fey folk may be mushrooms, and that's a weird statement. Uh, but, no, it's their embodiments. So a weird thing is the fey folk are always tied to what's called fairy circles, mm-hmm. and it's the big grass circles and stuff. Those are mushrooms. That's a colony of mycelia that makes itself in a circle. We're still not sure why mycelia do, does this when they make themselves in a cir- circle and they release a lot of nitrogen. Uh, and that's why the grass or whatever on top of them grows really bright in a circle. It's because they're feeding that grass in a circle for some reason. Uh, and it's always was weird to me that the fey folk are always associated with these circles. So I had, I can't even remember what episode, it may have been a Patreon thing, where we talked about hydron colliders and particle accelerators are built in a circle. And this may be their version to focus their energy to experience the world above them. And if you look at fey folk encounters, they're extremely weird. So, like, a lot of the jokes and stuff they can play on you can result in body in, bodily injury and death. It's like I told you earlier, uh, for a fungus, cutting off what would essentially be your right arm isn't that big a deal. They have to do it all the time. Uh, you know, they dissolve their own chunks of their body. So bodily harm isn't that serious to them. So it's that's one of those connections for me that this fey folk, bodily harm is a joke. You know, to them, it's nothing serious. They don't understand why you're getting worked up about, you know, being tripped off the cliff or whatever. Yeah. And it's because you're, it's to them, they don't understand that you have different limitations. Very alien, very alien in thoughts. Very interesting. It's, uh, okay, so let, let's, let's jump a little bit. Um, so fungus is spread by the release of spores. Most species, yes. And those spores are taken by other uh, other animals, other insects. They are they are transplanted um, via some vehicle, um, but also in the air. Yep, air, water, uh, any of it, and. 
when you start talking about air, it makes me wonder to what altitudes these spores can reach. And when, if, if and when, they are able to reach altitudes that are beyond what we're capable of seeing with the naked eye, above, say, cloud cover, um, where would they get their nutrients? Where and, and, and what would be the growth pattern that one would expect? So, I love the question because you know where my brain goes. Uh, but no, so that's a really, really good question because there are fungus, at least spores, found in the upper atmosphere. So we live in what's called the troposphere. Uh, that stops about 10 miles above zero sea level. Uh, you know, so when you're in the mountains, you know, it's obviously closer. When you're in the valleys, you know, it's farther away and that kind of stuff. But it's about anywhere on the, on the earth, it's given about 10 miles above your head. Now, the human eye, unabated, without a light source, can see about 10 miles so most of the time, you can, if you're looking up on a crystal clear day, you can barely see the tip of the troposphere we live in. Uh, and I had somebody on a different podcast uh, had a question. Stars, the reason why you can see stars is they're self-illuminated. Why you can see the moon is it's reflecting a lot of light, so it's basically self-illuminated. Because uh, they're like, if you can only see 10 miles, and why can you see that? Like I said, unabated. Uh, so, no, these spores get up. Sorry, they did some NASA studies, and they found a lot of spores in the upper atmosphere. No functioning fungus, no nothing, excuse me, growing or nothing like that. Uh, but as far as nutrients, around um, around mountain ranges on the planet and around ocean uh, thermal currents, there are billions of pounds a year getting pushed up into the upper atmosphere of detritus is what it's called. And that's little tiny particles of dirt, skin cells, plant matter, anything on the Earth's surface. It's little tiny bits that are getting pushed up. So you said NASA has, has done studies and and what they found up there. Are you indicating that that what they have found is is not uh, not a viable living organism? Or the, is it it's dormant? Or? It's in the dormant state. Okay. Uh, and that would the, the way they did their test, and that would be make, that would make sense. Uh, so that's for the NASA study. I'll tell you about it real quick. Uh, the big one we talked about is the 2019 NASA study because it was the last one because something big happened in 2019 and everybody kind of stopped doing stuff. Uh, so this last one, they, they built. It's not a Hester Dendy, but it's the only thing I can tell people that it's close to because it's a very complex piece of equipment. But it's basically a bug, fungus, bacteria hotel. So there's a whole bunch of these, like imagine like big boxes, and each box is a different uh, or a different height from you know stuff from being micrometers tall to you know being a couple inches tall. In between these layers is a jelly that's highly nutritious. Uh, so what it does, it promotes growth and you know promotes anything that's up there to take advantage of the free food. And then when you are done with your experiment, you close the box and you bring it back down and you count all the stuff that's in the box. Uh, and this is good for about anything. The ones we use in the water are called Hestridendies. I used to build them for part of my job. Uh, it's a very similar thing they put up there, just in a much more expensive box. Uh, so they did this study in 2019 and they expected to find maximum 14 species of anything. 
that's bacteria, that's fungus, that's animals, that's plants, whatever. Maximum 14 species. They found a little over 4,000. And they think it was probably closer to 10,000 because the stuff was eating each other in the box. Uh, Because they weren't, they didn't do the study very efficiently because they weren't expecting to find anything. That was so every, (laughs) yeah. So when they built this giant hotel, the bigger things in the box were like, well, everybody else is here. I'm going to start eating. They found pretty much every biological clay of life uh, uh, that doesn't have a spine. So that means there's a jellyfish cousin up there. There's, you know, uh, invertebrates cousins up there, bacteria and fungus. So the fungus they found growing, they found a lot of spores. uh, And then they found a couple individuals growing inside the box. The box ones were discredited because they just assumed the spore landed there and it found a suitable habitat. So it started growing. Uh, They don't know that they were living in the upper atmosphere. So the only thing they found in the air samples were spores, which would make sense the way they did their study. They had plans in 2020 to do a much more comprehensive uh, basically surveying technique. Uh, COVID happened and none of that happened. Uh, I don't know if they have any, I've been following it pretty closely. I haven't seen anything saying that, you know, they're gearing up this year to do it or they're gearing up next year to do it. Uh, but what that means is that they're up there. And I just, so there's a species, like I said, that lives in the Antarctic ice sheet. And, you know, they are very complex and growing. There's a species that lives in the deep sea vents there's a species that lives in the mud in the barren ocean. Uh, there's a species that live in the Himalayas and there's species that live in volcanoes. Uh, so there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's no habitat that they haven't conquered. So the upper atmosphere would not be one. I would venture that they would, would stop them. Uh, you know, if there's, and especially if there's a jellyfish like thing or there's other invertebrate like things up there, fungus have been around and conquered every other environment a lot longer. So of course they're up there. So does, but that's how the nutrients gets so up there. Do these fungus, my voice, good Lord, do the, <laughs> does this fungus necessarily have to have light to... No. No. Uh, so they break down food. Uh, so they're much more like animals. Uh, they really only look like plants and structure. Uh, you ever hear why, like, everybody compares the taste of mushrooms to meats and stuff like that. Like, literally, we have beef, steak, head of the woods. And because they're much more closer to the animals, they actually, their flesh is actually kind of meat. Uh, so what they do is they kind of, depending on the species, there's several species that kind of wrap around a prey or decomposing stuff, and they break them down that way. There's some that, like, capture prey. There's some that produce this, like, jelly kind of spider web. And that's how they catch all the food they eat. What do you think, uh, what do you think the likelihood that Bob out, out in Oregon, mm-hmm. that, that what we know of Bob is merely uh, the tendrils from an organism that may be um, much deeper within the earth. Uh, so, when I told you the 2,200 acres kind of squared thing, mm-hmm. he's about, they estimate him to be about six foot deep on average if he follows cl- uh, conventional honey mushrooms, uh, how they do. There's nothing average about Bob. Uh, I could fully believe that he could be a lot deeper, especially if there may be a cavern system underneath him. Uh, Cause they're just going to fill that space. 
uh, that's all food storage. So like a part of the body will be food storage, just like our bodies. You know, we just, uh, I think Bob, it could be a, a lot bigger. So I don't know. Did I tell you his estimated weight? I may have left that out. No. So if he's only six foot deep, uh, his estimated weight is between half a million pounds to 6 million pounds. They're not really sure because he's dense in some areas, not so dense in others. Uh, so he's the heaviest organism on the planet. Some people think it's uh, Pando, that big tree. It is not. It is not Pando. It is Bob. Uh, Bob outweighs Pando considerably. Uh, if he goes a lot deeper, like we're suggesting, he may be, you know, 20 million pounds, 30 million, you know, who knows? Uh and I do think that he does. I think he goes a lot deeper, especially if there's underground caves or an aquifer or anything that he can get to where he doesn't have to physically remove the sediment in his way. And he can just expand. I definitely could see that. Uh, I think Bob's massive. You know, this is this is way off the cuff. And I'm probably going to take some heat for saying this. But it would be really interesting if someone were to do a study on large fungal organisms under the ground and be able to map it, be able to map it, and then overlay a map of the missing 411 Ooh. on top of that and see if there was any kind of a correlation so it's funny you say that. Is it not? Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever publicly said this. You may be ruining an episode for me in the future, but I'm uh, going to do it. That's what I do. <laughs> There's a whole thing, especially out West, about rocks eating people. And they open up and they grab, gobble up people. They grab them and people still to this day, even like old, you know, like the slide rock boulder, but it's still this day, people say that there's rocks that'll move randomly and there's rocks that seem like they have mouths and rocks that like eat people. There's a species of fungus out West that looks like a, like a boulder. And I have wondered a very similar thing to whether if in extreme conditions or whatever, or if the, if the, it presents itself, if there are much more predatory fungus that we just haven't discovered. And for your missing 401, that would be very interesting because think about, like, how many stories have we heard of a missing 401 when they walk around and they turn around and their buddy's gone? Yeah. Well, because the rock beside him ate him. And so many of them are in areas where there are large uh, gatherings of rock. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, th- that would, I think you're on to something. That would be very interesting because uh, I do think there's stuff to that. Uh, no, my wheels are turning. You got me on to something else. That would be crazy. Wouldn't I would love a, to see that map. Wouldn't that be insane? And the guy that comes Bob's to, eating people. The guy, the guy that comes to mind that that might be the one to be able to do it. Um, you know, obviously, we'd have to provide him a map of of these uh, fungal systems. But um, the guy that does Bigfoot mapping project. Oh yeah, Scott Tompkins. Um, you know his. I, I, I'm going to plug him again. I, I just, I think it's a dollar ninety nine for the app, um, and in the work that he does is phenomenal. I mean, he he's always posting new, uh, new types of maps, usually state by state. Um, 
you know, like uh, I'll give you, for instance, uh, uh, Bigfoot sightings in the state of Michigan cross-referenced with known hiking trails in the state of Michigan, um, you know, and then he overlays these maps together. And there is a considerable, um, some would say coincidental, but I, I think there is more to it than that similarity between these maps. Um and at one point, he and I had been talking about it, and hopefully we'll be able to revisit this in another episode uh, where I was able to provide him with a map of UFO sightings throughout the, the U.S. Uh, from, the, from the turn of the century. And when you overlay those with, and, you know, and, and I'm not saying that there's a correlation between, I'm not saying Bigfoot fly UFOs or, or they're the puppy dogs of uh, extraterrestrials. But what I found to be very interesting was that when you, when you overlaid those two maps, very, very similar in the areas as far as uh, sightings of, of Bigfoot and um, UFO reports. Um, and then the other thing that I was hoping that he would be able to do at some point is overlay that with sites of known nuclear uh, uh, sites in the U.S., whether it be military or whether it be power grid uh, nuclear reactors, and and see if that has any uh, correlation to it. And I, I'm betting you that it does. I think so, too. For whatever reason, I do. I agree with you on that. I don't know why, but it definitely seems like when you get around these bases, the weirdness goes up. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a byproduct or on purpose, right? the weirdness goes up. That'd be interesting. I'd love to hear what you think about the mushroom idea. Uh, I have one, I guess one more thing, and then we were kind of hitting it earlier, but before I say that, there was a fact I forgot to throw out in the, in the beginning. Do you want to guess how many feet, meters, inches, or whatever of mycelia network are in the average U.S. square inch of soil, surface level. I had no idea. Six to eight meters per square inch of soil. Every inch. In every square inch. On average. In the U.S. So what that means is you're never away from fungus. They're always under you and around you. I think it's positive. But now you made me think about them eating people again, so... Who knows? Uh, but to the sky ones, so we were talking about how how could they flourish or whatever. Sure. I think that now I've gotten heat for this idea. You've got heat for You've said a heat one, I'll say a heat one. This is only 5% of UFOs, so I want to be very blunt. I only think it's a very small percentage of UFOs because they've come after us, the UFO community. Uh, I think they're living entities. Uh, we just did a live show this past week in uh, in Cincinnati, and that's what our topic was. Uh, I think a subset of the living entities, I think they're all Earth natives. I think, you know, they're just upper atmospheric creatures. I think a good chunk of these are atmospheric fungus, where there are these big, uh, which would be mycelial colonies, but they're kind of formed into one thing. And there are several species, like we just talked about the rock one. That's a mycelial colony that just looks like a big, it looks just like a granite boulder. Uh, there's people that would crack into them with, uh, they have a really, really hard exterior. They feel like a rock. They look like a rock. Uh, and there's people that crack into them with a pickaxe going for geodes and they say it's a bleeding rock. 
I'm sure some of you have seen videos and stuff of these rocks that start bleeding. That's a fungus. Uh, but they crack through. They have an extremely hard shell because they live in rock slide areas. So they have this shell so they don't get crushed by the cover they're using. So I think some of these UFOs are hard-shelled mushrooms in the sky. And that sounds crazy, uh, but I really do. Uh, so one, one of the things we think about this is um, a lot of the weird UFO abduction stories. There's one I pick of, of a hot dog vendor in Chicago or a hot dog truck driver. Uh, he had flashing lights, stop his truck. He got pulled over. He had a very, what seems to be a psychedelic experience. And then when he got back in his truck and he looked in the truck and every hot dog was gone. <laughs> Why the hell would a group of aliens take him on a mystic journey just to steal every one of his hot dogs? <laughs> now, here's one that um, the Betty and Barney Hill experience. Yeah. So anybody that doesn't know when you, if you do psychedelic mushrooms, you, you, it was really mindset dependent. Uh, if you go in with a very positive mindset, you generally have a very positive yeah. experience. If you setting. go in with a very negative mindset, it can be very scary. Set and setting uh, is a very important thing when doing psychedelics. So Betty and Barney Hill, for their lives, Betty was a free spirit, loved UFOs, loved the phenomena. Barney, it was a time, uh, he was a black man. He had power in his town, and he was hated because he married a white woman. Right. Uh, this was right after, you know, right after desegregation events and stuff like that. People were trying to kill Bob or uh, Barney constantly. Uh, so, you know, he had a gun on him all the time, stuff like that. And he actually died of a heart attack. And most uh, most of his doctors believed it was because he lived an extremely stressful, stressful life. life. Uh, so when you look at the Betty Barney Hill abduction, Betty had a very extremely positive experience. They showed her around the ship. They gave her a book. They, you know, it was this, that, and the other. Star child love. Shared the star maps with her. Yeah. Yeah. And then with Barney, it was Terrifying. basically rape. Terrifying. Yeah. Torturous. And they got put in the car and all this stuff. So they had, I don't know if maybe you've gone into this or not. There were men in black encounter a couple days later. So they asked him a series of questions. And in the middle of that series of questions. Barney said it was like question 70 or something like that. It was crazy. He asked, did you have any nitrates in the car? And Barney's like, well, what the hell's a nitrate? And he's like, you know, it's found, it's in hot dogs, it's in fertilizer, it's in, you know, it's all this stuff. And Barney's like, I had 400 pounds of fertilizer in the trunk. And he asked, is it still there? It's like, no, I don't know what happened to it. No idea. But when we went up there, I had 400 pounds of fertilizer. Don't have it. And, and he's like, why? And then he's, the man black wouldn't answer that question more, moved on. In that area, in that era, there was a lot of UFO abductees that were being asked about nitrates. You know, out of that's, nowhere. That's, that's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, I mean, that's that, that abduction scenario, that, that story has been, you know, with me from a, a very early age, you know, that was probably one of the first uh, real abduction stories that I had ever heard of and wrap, kind of try to wrap my head around. Um, and, and going back 
into my memory now. I can only remember reading about that, the nitrate, on, on one, in one article. That's not something that's covered uh, in any length uh, in any of the documentaries or, or any right. of the, uh, the, the, the glossing over of the story of, of their abduction. Um, but yeah, now that you bring that up, had you not said that, I probably never would have remembered it. But yeah, I do recall coming across that in one of the articles. Because it's a weird one-off thing. Why would anybody? So I, I was doing, I can't remember what episode I was researching when I came across that. And I was doing a UFO episode and I had hit it three times in a row. It was just like a weird coincidence thing. And I'm like, why? Why would UFOs want earth nitrates? Like if they're aliens, they could make their own, I'm sure. If they're interdimensional, you know, it's just, and I'm like, they're all fungus. And I started, I called Jay and that's the joke because I was screaming to Jay, they're all fungus and it made no sense to him and I hung up on him because that work. Uh, so I think some of these abductions are psychedelic events that are because these organic UFOs are coming down because they can sense a large food source. So why would they be interested in a, a large thing of nitrates? Well, when you're airbound, weight is very important. Me and you are full of nitrates, but we're also full of water, bone, uh, all the stuff that's not very good, as in for very nutritious, but is also very heavy. Stuff like fertilizers, hot dogs, stuff are still heavy, but they have a lot more of those nitrates that they're craving. So it's more cost effective. And we already talked about, you know, mushrooms kind of act more robotic or more mathematical with how they make decisions on food sources and such. So being around them, there are species of fungus we have on earth that they produce psilocybin and like their spores and stuff like that. So you can accidentally get high being around some of these species of mushroom on earth. So I think that's what's happening here with a very limited amount of abductions is that you are actually being kind of cornered by one of these big atmospheric creatures. I do think they're bioluminescent. We have species of bioluminescent mushrooms. You beat me to it, you bastard. Uh, you know, it, it, so that was good. That was going to be my next question, uh, which, I mean, honestly, I knew the answer to. But, you know, is there any precedent for bioluminescence in in, fungi, in, in the world that we live in? And there is. Um, the, the interesting thing here is... Um, two summers ago, a movie called Nope came out. Yep. Two summers ago, last summer. Last summer. Last summer. Um, great movie. Um, love the director. Jordan Peele is uh, a master at uh, at horror and and that genre. Um, most notably, redid the. Uh, uh, Twilight Zone series uh, a few years back. Um, he's had a couple other movies that were um, really, really different and good. Um, but then he comes out with Nope. And, you know, having, I've said this in a lot of different broadcasts that, you know, UFOs were my gateway into um, all this weirdness. And it started back at the, I was already full blown obsessed with UFOs back at the age of five. And the thing I found really interesting was that, you know, throughout, throughout the years that I've 
I've been interested in this and have delved into this topic of UFOs. Um, you know, it, it's not a common thing to come across, but there has been mention made of UFOs being organic to some extent. Um, and then his take on it was, of all things, to to come up with this organic creature that was in the shape of a UFO, behaved mm-hmm. like a UFO as far as the way it moved, um, and the the peripheral effects of it being around, um, you know, i.e. Uh, electronics and stuff like that, cutting out and interference and stuff like that. Um, but the fact that he had the presence of mind or the 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 forward thinking enough to create his antagonist to be this biological UFO gene jacket um, is to me goes a little beyond coincidental. Um, mm-hmm. Now. I have the privilege of knowing somebody who has had conversation with him and that he has alluded to uh, having been fed information that may have formed his opinion on, on some of these. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on record as saying I think that the majority of the craft that are seen in the skies are of a nuts and bolts um, but there are those and and they may be completely unrelated and I think they probably are. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I don't I think, think I think, I think it's two overlapping phenomena. Yeah, I think they're two overlapping phenomena. The fact that they both uh, are, are witnessed and reside in the skies above us um, are the are the main impetus for people putting them together and and in the same basket. And I don't think they belong in the same basket. Um, you know, originally when you first started talking about these biological UFOs. Um, I was, I was kind of against you on, on that. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was a very cool idea, but I was like, I don't, I don't think so. Um, the more that I've gotten to, to think about it with, uh, with, with some clarity and, and some more research, um, I, I think, I think there is probably something in our skies that we are not privy to. Um, again, just like Bigfoot, why haven't we found a body? Why haven't we seen, you know, why aren't there any remnants of, um, you know, obviously if it lives, it's got to die. Uh, so why doesn't it just fall out of the sky and, you know, slap down right down in the middle of I-94 and, you know, there's this big gelatinous looking thing that nobody can figure out what the hell it is. Um, that aside, <laughs> um, you know, that that's a pretty big one. You know, just I like, can answer that one, though, just so you know. Can you? Mm-hmm. Let's hear it. So, for the no, why no bodies, uh, first off, there have been, and we'll talk about that here in a second. 
Uh, second off, 70% of the Earth's surface, roughly, is ocean. So it's a numbers game. Uh, when they die, they have a 70% chance okay. of just smacking dead in the ocean. Okay. And you, you just see big rotting masses of flesh in the ocean. Nobody knows what the hell they are half the time. We know they're probably a whale, but, you know. Secondly, there's a been events of raining meats and all this stuff, like the Kentucky meat showers is the one I always go to. It was 10 miles long and three miles wide. It stretched over three counties. Thousands of people collected and ate the meat. And nobody could ID it. Uh, there's still two samples inside the Smithsonian. And it has not been thoroughly DNA tested in probably the last 10 years. It was in the 90s and it was inconclusive, but it had so much preservatives in it, you're not going to get nothing out of it. Uh, there's the star jelly events. Star jelly events have been documented up to 10,000 years ago with raining these giant gelatinous chunks that nobody really knows what they are. Uh, we just talked about one in our live show, the Nova Scotia one, that killed people. Uh, what happened is that these giant jelly chunks fell all over this town, and they're clear jelly. Nobody really knew what they were. People were picking it up and, like, playing with it and putting it in their fridge and stuff like that. People started going to seizures, touching the stuff, and dropping. The hospital was full of people, and it killed a couple kids. Uh, so what happens with jellyfish is even after they're dead, their stinging cells can still fire and they can still deliver their full payload of venom, even in the process of decomposing. That's why dead jellyfish on the beach are extremely dangerous. Yeah. The other thing is why do they shred is because if they die very high up in the atmosphere and they have very soft ish bodies as they're free falling, they're not controlled flight. They're just free falling. They're starting to rip up into chunks. Uh, these aren't hard-bodied animals. Nothing, I, in my opinion, nothing that living that high is a hard-bodied animal, as in bones. You know, by the time they get here, they're pretty much chunkified. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever been around or anybody at home's ever been around. When you cut a mushroom or a jellyfish, you see them. They kind of just rot immediately. Uh, the star jelly event in Nova Scotia, they had samples. They had pieces of it in the fridges and stuff like that. It was gone in hours. There was one, it was melting and people, it was like, they were describing almost like ice, but it was like jelly. Uh, there was one college that got a chunk of it before it disappeared. And they noted that it had uh, cell membranes. It had cells in it. It was biological. They just didn't know, but it had no DNA they could see. Uh, he stated that it was probably already de degraded too far for them to get anything out of it. We have these star jelly events that have been documented for in every country for tens of, or for thousands of years, and even up to 10,000 years ago. The Aborigines documented one in cave art. So we've been seeing them, in my opinion. We've been seeing their bodies. They've been hitting the earth. They've been, you know, they fall. But just by the time they get here, you know, most of the pieces, and I think some of these things are gigantic, but most of the pieces are, you know, you could fit in a bread box. It's interesting. And, you know, I mean, You know, so here the, the the skeptic, the skeptical part of my mind is, why is there, you know, with all of the technology that we have, uh, you know, cameras, um, why are these things invisible to us? Um, you know, you would think, uh, and and I'm going to have to delve into this. I don't know how accurate this is. Uh, but I came across an article recently. Um, this doesn't really tie in, but maybe it kind of does. So I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, 
the name of the uh, um, the die the uh, Dicianin, D-I-C-Y-A-N-I-N, was uh, was the original um, blue color that uh, night optics were uh, designed to use. Um, and apparently during those first uh, generation that used the blue coloring rather than what we're used to now as being the, the, the odd green night vision. Um, apparently soldiers in, uh, I believe it was in Vietnam, were, were using these blue colored night vision goggles and they were able to see um, entities that were not seen by the naked eye. Um, almost like it was able to recognize the auras or, or the, uh, the, the energies of, of things that were um, not in our natural field of view. <coughs> And and I wonder if uh, if that is true. Is there? It sounds it sounds kind of wild. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but there's there's some articles out there about it. So you know there might be mm-hmm. something to it. Um, why has why has there not been an accidental um, sighting of of one of these things in our upper atmosphere? Uh, just you know, purely by by coincidence or mistake, by using a, a certain type of lens or a certain type of filter um, while looking up there. So great question. So I think we do have some video evidence in our live show. We just did this past weekend. We did. We had five or six videos of these creatures. I feel, uh, but I think they're not native, as in fully native to our layer of the atmosphere. So we live in the troposphere. Right above the troposphere is the ozone. It goes into the stratosphere. So most people have this idea that once you get above the ozone, it's frigid. There's no, you know, it's a dead space. But between the, the stratosphere and the mesosphere, there's a gigantic Goldilocks zone. that's about 40 to 45 degrees. It has liquid water. Uh, I think that's where most of these creatures are living. And they're just like, so what whales will do is they'll live in the open ocean and the cold waters and stuff like that. But every once in a while, they'll pop into like the, uh, the Daytona beach humpback whales will stop to warm up and relax for a little bit. And then it'll go back into the open cold ocean. I think what's happening when these couple videos that we do have this little bit of evidence we do have of them is when they're popping below that barrier just to warm up and relax for a minute. Uh, and then sometimes they get caught in this wind currents and stuff like that. The, the environment above the ozone layer is very different than the environment below. Uh, but it's a lot warmer below, you know, it's locking in that radiant heat. Uh, so I think it's just a thing that we are not using a lot of, most of the time, the same space. You know, commercial airlines do not go above 10 miles. And most of the time they're sitting at seven miles. Or what is that, uh, they about do, 30, 32, 36,000 feet? Yeah, something like that, yeah. So they stay in that range. Uh, and most of the time it's above most storm systems. Uh, but it's still not nowhere near breaking the barrier out of our layer of the atmosphere. And the weird thing about our atmosphere is the layers 
actually kind of have like not hard edges, but they have definitive points to where you can tell you're leaving one layer to the, the next. Ours is the ozone. The ozone sits right on top of that kind of bubble. Uh, so when we leave the trope and go to the strat, you know, that's what's happening. You're popping through the ozone layer. Radiation does spike, uh, but we have tons of creatures on Earth that can deal with that radiation, no problem. Uh, specifically, jellyfish are one of them. And it's kind of funny that that's a lot of the creatures that are seen up there are jellyfish-like. Uh, and fungus eat a lot. There's certain species of that fungus that eat that radiation as a food source. Uh, so it's like a free buffet. Uh, so it's just, in my opinion, we're not getting a lot of that co-occurrence together. And then why you don't see them with like a camera on Earth, you know, on Earth. We look in telescopes all the time. Why don't they fly in front of the lens? I think it's two things. Half the creatures that are living up there are almost transparent by nature, like a jellyfish. So you're more or less, you know, looking through them and thinking of them maybe just as a smudge or maybe just, you know, something. And these more silvery ones that I believe exist, uh, it's the odds game again. You're looking through the biggest environment on the Earth. Even if there was a, two or three blue whales in a line up there, you know, we're talking 25, 30, 40 miles up. And, you know, you're not going to, it's just it would be very unlikely for you to get one. Uh, and I think they move incredibly quick. So the little bit of videos we do have, and I think I have them on our Facebook page now. If not, I will try to have them up when this episode comes out, uh, of gliding clouds and these creatures that are seen out of jetliners and stuff like that. There's literally a video of what looks like a squid in the air that it's being filmed out of a jetliner. And when the jetliner gets too close, it's like a big umbrella, it almost looks like. When the jetliner gets too close, it pulls itself in, and itself it jets off. Just like what we have on Earth called blanket octopus, you know, in the right. ocean. Yeah. They have these giant tendrils, and when they feel threatened, they pull in and they jet. Uh, so I think it's just kind of, for actual pictures and video, it's just kind of the odds game. They don't stay in our part of the atmosphere for very long. Uh, and that's why planes aren't hitting these things and stuff like that. Yeah, there was one story of one of the NASA shuttles, now I don't remember, that they said when they went through the atmosphere, they had a green film on the window for just a second. Like they hit something. Like they hit a, And now we know there's actual big algae clouds up there, and there's a, almost, it's not plankton, but it's a plankton-like thing that's up there feeding on the algae clouds. So the ocean and the upper atmosphere mimic each other very much. So I always like to say... We found the plankton, we found the algae, we even found the little fish and the little jellyfish. So where are the whales? Right. Uh, and that's why I think we're seeing every once in a while. And I just think it's the odds game. It just they're so they're so far up. I mean, you know, the planes you're seeing and they they look tiny. They're only seven miles above you most of the time. Now quadruple it and look for something that's semi-transparent. You're not going to find it. It's just, you know, and then I think we do have the cases of people seeing them lower. Oh, and I did want to make one note about note before I forget again. I got our first two episodes about organic UFOs out before the first note trailer dropped. I have to brag on that. I do love the movie, though. But and then the second thing is in the in the credits, there is a section that says with government consultation. Yes, I saw that, too. Uh and, you know, uh, what was the uh, communion had the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is the alien, you know, alien encounters movie. But yeah, I love and, it. And I think they're all. And, there, and there's a, a lot of a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, not only by having Alan J. Hynek appear in the movie, 
um, but that Steven Spielberg had been a, the recipient of, of a good deal of information from the the governments of the world, not just necessarily the U.S., uh, when he was making uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Hmm. It's what I wish Jay was here, but he was saying soft disclosure. <laughs> it's his favorite word because it is. Well, you oh. know, I mean, disclosure. Um, you know, I was excited a couple of years ago when the uh, uh, the videos, the the go fast, the gimbal, um, the tic tac, when those came out, and you know, it basically, then they admitted yes, these these were uh, recorded by U.S. military. Uh, we don't know what they are, and then you know we went through the the congressional uh, um, sessions where you know they were provided information, and you know at one point there was a, a very few number of uh, sightings that were being investigated when a bunch of other ones were uh, already dismissed, and then you know fairly recently. Uh, they basically came out and said, yeah, well, we made a mistake. All, you know, all of it's, all of it's crap. Uh, it, none of it is real. And now even more recently, uh, now there's 650 uh, specific reports that are being investigated by the, um, the U.S. government uh, in, in some shape or form uh, by some uh, agency. Um, so, you know, we're getting a lot of mixed uh a lot of mixed information coming out about this stuff. I, I really didn't intend for this to turn into a, a, a UFO. <laughs> uh, but that being said, uh, given the topic and, and knowing my line of questioning, um, it was destined to go there. So, Justin, uh, I can't thank you enough. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you. I can never spend too much time with you. Really, <coughs> really looking forward to seeing you uh, in a in a week or so at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. I know we'll both be there supporting our shows, and uh, if it was anything like last year, it's sure to be a a lot of fun. And uh, oh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We're gonna we're gonna throw a few back, I'm sure. And, oh uh, yeah, it's, it's always a ball sitting around the campfires talking and telling stories. So. Well, thank you for having me on. It's always, I know we've talked an hour and 40 minutes, and I think we could sit here and talk, probably talk another two. Easily. Uh, Easily. But thank, <laughs> thank you for having me on. Uh, it's always it's always great to talk with you. Uh, and like you said, if you don't mind me shouting out one thing uh, before we go. Absolutely. I want you we, to shout out everything. So once again, Cryptus Corn Podcast, we do, like Eric said, we do like 50 other podcasts, or we produce like another one, Wink. Uh, but we have this film thing that's getting ready to get going. Uh, May 4th is when it's like a Kickstarter. Uh, I can, it's on our Facebook page. I can send Eric the link or whatever. It's, if it doesn't get funded, me and Jay are going to fund the whole rest of the way. It's just this thing. So we have a Kickstarter for the lawn chair documentaries. Uh, we already have one backer. It's a lawn chair company out of Georgia. It sent us a whole patio set to record in. Uh, but if anybody feels, if you could share it, you don't have to donate, but if you could share it, we greatly appreciate it. Cause it helps just build for that stuff. So you can find us, us on all the give socials. Us, give us a little dirt. What's, what's the long chair documentaries? Uh, so we're doing, 
so we can't, you know, I physically have some physical ailments and stuff like that. You know, I can't hike like I used to and stuff like that. So the whole point is we're going to go to all these sites of Bigfoot encounters, UFO abductions, the Mothman, Frogman. We're going to go to all these sites and do a documentary out of our lawn chairs to show that anybody can do this. You know, you know, Jay's more able-bodied than I am, but I have, you know, troubles with hiking and stuff like that. So it's hard to go out into Daniel Boone National Forest to go hunt for Dogman, Joel. Uh, so we wanted, that's the premise of this documentary series. And we've gotten a lot of positive feedback. We kind of were playing around with it a couple months ago with our Patreon members and such. And they wanted us to really go for it. So that's kind of the series. So like our first one that we're going to really do is the Wheeler UFO abduction. Uh, and that would dealt with the UFO landing and getting out of a landfill uh, repeatedly. And this whole family experiencing UFO abduction stuff to where each kid was seeing the other kid get abducted and wasn't talking about it. And they didn't find this out until therapy years. And the one kid was getting abducted by a mommy and the other kid was getting abducted by a monkey man, a very Sasquatch-like entity. The dad was like harassed. The mother was harassed. It actually broke their family apart. The dad and the mother both have publicly spoke about it, though. So we're going to do this documentary about that. But that's the kind of stuff. Uh, it's a Kickstarter. Uh, our buddy Christian that helps do Tony's stuff, you know, sent us a camera to buy and what microphones to buy. And that's what the Kickstarter is for. Uh, so we greatly appreciate any support, even just sharing it. That's, that helps out tremendously. But yeah, I look forward to that at the end of this year, having some of those come out. Make sure you send me the links to, to the do. Kickstarter and stuff so I can put, post that with the, with the show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Can't wait to see you. Thanks so much for being here with me. Thank you. Bye. Well, that's it for tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Justin. Uh, Go give those guys some love over at Cryptids of the Corn. They do a great job. And, uh, man, you want to talk about some guys that are not lazy. They are putting in the work and putting out a lot of content. Um, you can hear them anywhere you listen to Uncomfortable Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, all the different major uh, providers. You can find them there. That's Cryptids of the Corn. Again, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, both at Uncomfortable Podcast 65. If you have a story or experience that you would like to have aired on the show, please get a hold of me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. Make sure to share the show any way you can. That's what helps grow a podcast like this. Share it with your friends, family, coworkers. Hell, I don't care. Share it with people you don't even like. Just get people listening. That's the main thing you can do to help continue to grow the show and get it out in front of more people. Thanks for joining me. I will see you all next week. And as always, stay uncomfortable, my friends.